Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mormons, Mystics, and Muons, where we focus on reconstruction and recontextualization through an integration of science, psychology, consciousness, and philosophy. So today, Eldon, we were going to talk about, we'll finish out, talk about the plan of salvation and overlap with the Mormon plan of salvation and esoteric and new age views on it. But I was thinking I had been reading a bit about UFOs and aliens and Sasquatch and Loch Ness and fairies. Have you, do you have any exposure to any of this stuff? I, we, I put some of the stuff in the chat, but I don't know if you. Well, there was this one time in the mountains in 1993. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I haven't gone too far down that hole. Although when the u.s formed the uh the new branch of the military called the space force i thought there's either two reasons for that one they really do have information on extraterrestrial activity or some kind of at least uh, interplanetary threat let's just say or two there's enough that uh like ai or uh, other people are going to be able to create with video to make it feel like they like those things are real so the space force is already in place kind of as um you know the i guess the people who would handle it if it ever became a problem hmm. in other words it's like a marketing tool for itself so i i mean i had always dismissed these things and, and never looked much into it even though i was a fan of x files growing up but it was always, yeah, I always thought it was kooky, but I've circled back around as I've explored consciousness more and moved away from materialist view of philosophy into idealism. This idea that we're kind of living in this cosmic, the universe's dream is cosmic intelligence's dream. And and understanding more about people's exploration of consciousness through meditation, through psychedelics, and these experiences where people, you know, are experiencing altered states of reality, altered states of consciousness, whether exogenous with substances or we had posted earlier that article about you know, on psychology today, where we talked about, you know, have you had a psychedelic drug-free psychedelic experience? And that whole article was talking about a study where, I mean, it showed that people endogenously through what they termed these spontaneous spiritual awakenings that they surveyed were having experiences that really closely mapped onto psychedelic experiences, as well as sensory deprivation or near-death experiences. I mean, there's so much overlap in these experiences that I've started to look at these in a, a different light, especially because I had you know, those experiences where I didn't see any like entities or anything, but definitely had a visual shift to everything being more beautiful and crisper and, um, you know, these feelings of bliss and kind of feeling like I was 
experiencing a different, higher, like more expanded state of reality and realizing that, you know, what is reality, what we're experiencing isn't actually this material world, but it's our rendering of our sensory input into kind of this consensus reality, but there are certain states of consciousness where that reality starts to break down and people see things, things change, but it's not necessarily, I mean, I think the idea of like hallucination misleads people because they think it's something, oh, it's, that's something in your mind. That's an artifact of your mind, something messing with your mind, but that belies the fact that everything you experience is your mind, in your mind constructing. Yeah. And so it's been interesting to circle back and realize like, oh, it's not, well, I started to realize like, maybe it's not about like the content matter of seeing aliens or seeing Sasquatch or seeing Loch Ness or seeing Angel Moroni in your bedroom, maybe focusing in on that and trying to interpret it from a very materialistic three dimensional perspective, you get in, you get stuck in the weeds when it's actually, these are states of consciousness where reality, your rendering of reality starts to break down and you know, whatever those areas in which it breaks down, it starts to come through these alter states of reality. It comes through as like what you expect the, you know, if you're into UFOs and those type of things, or if you're in an area where that's the predominantly experienced phenomenon, um, that's can be what it manifests. Whereas if you're a very religious person, you're going to see God and Jesus Christ, um, or if you're Buddhist to Hindu, you know, it comes through within the language that you, mm-hmm. uh, experience. And so there are many people that view UFOs and these different phenomena in a very literal sense and are trying to, you know, discuss the possibility of some primate species that just somehow continue to exist. But as I've read, I've read some of these pretty well done scientific, um, or logical pieces on it. And I think the most compelling perspective on it is that, yeah, these are altered states of consciousness. And you said something in one of the first episodes about how you have, you know, we all have different states of consciousness and we shift through them at different times. And that that's actually how, what the evidence shows that these appear as. And so it's, I've realized it's more, you know, like when we're dreaming, that is a state of consciousness, but it's a very easily recognizable, at least after the fact, you know, when you're in a dream, you're convinced that that is real and that this is your reality. And it's only when you're Mm -hmm. out at the next level up, you're like, oh no, that was a dream. Um, But if you really dig in and explore what dreaming is versus what waking reality is, Mm -hmm. it gets pretty fuzzy because when you're dreaming, your brain is constructing a reality, but it's using the, as its input, it's using 
your subconscious, the emotions that it's trying to work through. And there's a bunch of different theories on dreaming, but it's kind of taking a cord for your VR headset. Um, and it's kind of plugging it into its past experiences and the things that was processing where, but the same, I mean, your visual, your motor, uh, all the different areas of your brain are mm -hmm. active just the same way as when you're awake, they're active in the same way you're paralyzed. And that's one of the aspects of dreaming that makes it different, but it, for all intents and purposes, your brain is experiencing reality. Um, yeah. It's just a different phase of reality. Whereas when you're awake, um, again, it's taking, we feel like we're experiencing, you know, we're seeing something across the room, we're hearing something, we're hearing a bird, we're seeing a tree. But if you really dissect it, instead of seeing something across the room, hearing something across the field, um, you're experiencing the inside of your head because your body is taking input, converting it to electrical signals and it's being processed in your brain. Whereas, and so we view, we act as though there's an objective reality, but you realize you know, all those situations, a different life form, like a snake is going to render that reality very different. And so, so there's, you know, waking and sleeping as far as your brain is con concerned, they're just different modes of reality. And yeah. so these experiences I've realized they're the best explanation for them is that they are a mode of consciousness that you're a state of consciousness that you can kind of go into, but there's mm -hmm. not a very clear delineation between when you're in like the normal state of consciousness to these expanded states of consciousness or these kind of psychedelic experiences. And so it's much harder to see, um, to kind of track where you, what state of consciousness you're in. And I think this, this maps onto, um, I kind of envisioned this idea of, you know, this kind of map of consciousness. And there's some, there's a recent article that I saw about how depression, you know, there, some people are starting to view that, that as like a form of consciousness. It is a state of consciousness that you get stuck in. And so and this, you know, if you look into these experiences, it really does line up, you know, these Sasquatch encounters, um, these, you think, I thought that there were people out in the woods that just felt normal. And then they saw something that looked like Sasquatch and then, uh, it disappeared. But most, a lot of these experiences, they have synchronicities before and after. So they start having weird things, spiritual experiences, you know, basically synchronicities yeah. are Carl Jung's terms. They have things happening before and after that seem very weird. They have really weird feelings. A lot of times the aliens or Sasquatch or whatever communicate telepathically to the people and they have very strange feelings with it. Some of them have a lot of love for the species. And then also these encounters, they can morph from like a very physical uh, appearance of Sasquatch or aliens, or whatever, but then it'll morph into like a lightning ball or whatever. So it'll go through these kind of different, very psychedelic ish. Um, and there's a lot of overlap with like DMT where people often see, depending on which psychedelic you're talking about, people will see these kind of archetypal, um, entities. So with ayahuasca, they'll see mother ayahuasca representing kind of the earth. 
and then with DMT, they'll see these kind of fractal machine elves. And so there's a lot of overlap with um, psychedelic and states of consciousness and these um, UFO fairies, Sasquatch. Yeah. And it, I mean, it makes so much more sense rather than trying to track down like actual flying saucers. And it's not to say that none of these things are physical, but there's just this whole range of like, um, yeah, the one paper I was reading, it's like, you know, the question isn't if it's real or not, but it's like, what kind of real is it? Yeah. I was just going to say that it's like Sasquatch is real because there's a statue of him at the park that my kids play on <laughs> and there's, you know, rugby teams that name themselves after him or whatever, like the, what's real, uh, there's something real about us, but there's also something about us that rises into the collective conscious, at least to mm. the local, uh, it's like the cloud, um, the cloud computing is very interesting to me because it's very much a kind of a digital mm -hmm. representation of the collective unconscious or, or the collective conscious, like what, what it is that we collectively bring into reality because of our collective consciousness and, um, Sasquatch just occupies place in people's minds, mm -hmm. which is just as real as other things. Right. Um, I've never seen Sasquatch. I don't expect to see Sasquatch when I go into the mountains. It's not something I'm like preoccupied with. Um, but yeah, you're either left just finding all of the people that said they've had some kind of experience with it, seeing a UFO or seeing Sasquatch. Um, you're left just kind of saying they're wrong because that can't be real by the standards of, let's say, you know, what's scientifically explained, been explained at this point. Or just like that they're crazy, hmm. that they're just making it up for fame or something. Maybe that they're, maybe that they're frauds, that they're making it up. So you kind of got to run through those possibilities. And one of them, I mean, that makes a lot of sense that it's a shared experience because it could be a state of consciousness that you could get into where all of those things, it like what is real about Sasquatch before comes into your reality. Mm -hmm. Or what's yeah, real about Sasquatch collectively that you've heard and seen? And yeah, and th this paper that I read, I mean, it tried to create a very meta perspective on this and kind of went over the whole different spectrum of, you know, some things appear to be very physically real and then others are more kind of psychically or, or mentally real and, and things shift from one to the other and like in experience. Um, and that you really have to look, you know, some of these, some of these ab abductions, supposedly, you know, the, the person, the person's physical body is, you know, they faint, their husband's holding them while they're out. They have this basically experience where they feel like they're abducted. So some of them are like that, um, where there's uh, another one is podcast I was listening to where it was, this is actually a New York times reporter talking about. Um, this very scientifically, he, he actually broke one of the, a story a few years back about the government programs on this and how actually serious it is because there are a lot of accounts of people experiencing these things. Um, and, uh, one of the other experiences was one where there were two kids that had an experience of like being abducted or seeing aliens or whatever. And the mother 
when she went to check on them during supposedly when this happened, they weren't there in the room and then they later were there. So there's just this whole broad range of experiences that you have to look at all together and try to find a unifying theory that, you know, explains them all. And I think consciousness and idealism makes the most sense and recognizing that and this happened, you know, this is part of the Mormon origin stories too, whereas, you know, some of the witnesses talked about seeing it with their spiritual eye. And so, you know, seeing the plates with their spiritual eye. And so there, yeah, is some evidence that maybe these were like guided meditations. Um, but I think that you also, you know, in people's psychedelic experiences reports, you know, these aren't just things that they see in their mind's eye. You know, there are some that, you know, if they put eye masks on and go inward, yeah, it'll be in their mind's eye. But then there are others where it's, it's actually their physical reality. And it's, I think schizophrenia is a good example of this too, is like, these are real, this is their reality that they're experiencing, these voices that they're hearing, they're seeing. I mean, it's just as real to them as our reality is to us. It's just that we also have more, we have a consensus reality. Um, and there are some people that are, whether it's due to mental health or um, these other psychic abilities or, or whatever you want to call it, um, have more of these experiences. And this ties into uh, what we're talking about today, though, because as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about, well, I guess first, first off, like God is, falls into this category, you know, different religions view God in a, in a similar way and is real to that degree, um, to some degree for each of them. And they all are defined differently and have, they have experiences that confirm that to them. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, Mormonism teaches that there are other planets and other, um, you know, Christ is the savior of other planets and there's other life out there. And then I was, cause this article I was reading talked about kind of a rough categorization of different types of entities that people describe. And, um, I was just thinking about this idea of like, okay, so what, who are these other beings from other planets and are they within like the LDS framework? Are they all humans? Are they not? And like, I mean, wondering about silly things about like, what are their modesty standards? Like is God as, I mean, it's thinking about things in such an expansive way started to make me realize, I think how small our view or my view of God used to be. And just, I think in general, like religion, especially Mormon view of God is, is that like the most important things seem to be some really small things about like drinking coffee. Like, uh, is there is coffee like a universal standard of these other worlds? You know, what it, when you really take some of these teachings that are very literal, um, if you take them literally and really objective, it does start to, I think, bring up some issues of like, what, what really is most important and are the things that are emphasized within Mormonism like, are, does it really make sense that these are the biggest litmus tests of faith and obedience? And, um, yeah, are these other 
beings human? And if they are, like, is are these standards of morality? And, and then even like even within our history, you know, there's a pretty law of chastity is you need to be legally lawfully married. But what about if you're stranded on a desert island or before society had legal um, marriage? Like, it is very small to think about a God that is bound by earthly institutions of legal marriage and, and for that matter, like time and space to the, the God of most religions, especially of Mormonism is very much bound by time. You know, he's operating on a linear time, even though book of Abraham, Abraham talks about it, like time works differently for him, but it just works, I think faster for him, but it's still a linear process. Whereas in physics, you know, a lot of physicists recognize that time and space are constructs. They are kind of illusions and not fundamental aspects of reality. So, yeah, well, they're, they're definitely relative, um, you know, to where you are in the universe, uh, because of the effects of gravity and what it can do to time with time dilation. Uh, and so those are some interesting thoughts. I mean, I'm, trying to so the let's let's say for a second with ufos and sasquatch the people that have seen them that that had those experiences were in a kind of a different conscious state maybe at that moment and sasquatch is in nature or a lot of i think ufo experiences happen in nature too and i read this interesting book it was called um oh crap i'm not gonna it's like the three day rule or something like that. I'll have to look it up, but it's, it's, uh, the miracle that happens when you spend three days in nature hmm. and there's these people who are, there's some studies about it. There's some interesting things that I guess they're finding out three days in nature seems to be kind of like a good average for modern day civilized people like ourselves, I guess, to, um, kind of reset things. Maybe their circadian rhythm, maybe, um, there's enough sleep involved to kind of reset the priorities and you're in nature. I, I don't know enough about the details of how it works, but I, from my own experience, for sure, three days outside and you start to feel different. I've started to feel really good after spending time like that in the mountains or outside. I wonder if a lot of those happen in after enough time has passed where your reality can change. If you're in nature, mm -hmm. time also changes spending a whole day in the mountains without a phone, without the things that we normally surround ourselves with every day, uh, can be a really, really long day and not in a negative way. It can feel full and it can, and especially if you can find adventure in that day. So, um, that that's an interesting thought that it's just state of their consciousness. So those people wouldn't necessarily be wrong for having ex wrong for saying that they saw what they saw. It's not like it didn't happen. It's not like it's not real. It's that it's as real to them as any other state of consciousness that we're in experiencing whatever we're experiencing at the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah. And it's the, it's interesting that paper that I read that was arguing for this more like meta meta framework, um, and also based around idealism was talking about the different standards of evidence, um, and there's like legal evidence and there's also scientific standards for evidence. And from a legal perspective, you know, there it's almost open shut 
about many of these cases that these would hold up in court because it's just how many, you know, some of these are group witnessed experiences and yeah, but it doesn't fit under like a scientific materialist um, framework. Um, another, well, another parallel to this too, I don't know, have you ever talked to anybody or watched anything about people doing darkness retreats? Mm -mm. So there's a darkness retreat up here in Oregon. Um, people do it three, five, seven days. And so you're going into like a pitch black, uh, you know, they make it very careful to make sure no light gets in there. You pay money to get hold up and then they deliver food to you and they, I think, tend the fire uh, if it's cold and, or the heating. Um, but yeah, everything is totally dark and they come in and give you food and it's through a little thing that again, doesn't let any light in. Wow. And you, after, you know, a certain period of time, you start seeing, hearing, experiencing things that are as real as real to you. Um, and I've heard different, I haven't looked too much into it, um, different explanations. One is that your brain starts producing its own DMT, um, which is the psychoactive or psychedelic uh, compound in ayahuasca and supposedly linked to dreams. And it's found in rat pineal glands and likely found in humans. It's just hard to find because you have to blend up the brain, I think, to, to find it. But, um, but yeah, so one of the supposed uh, explanations that your brain starts producing DMT because you're, you know, off this light, dark, um, rhythm. Uh, I think another explanation that probably plays into it too, is that just like people who lose certain senses, their brain very quickly starts to reappropriate those, uh, aspects of the, um, the, the brain, uh, reapportions those aspects out to different senses. So people that are blind, the area that would generally be producing vision is linked into other sensory inputs for them. Mm -hmm. And so I think your brain does that very quickly. That's one of the theories behind dreaming of why we dream is that it's your brain's kind of protective mechanism of keeping these areas like online and used for what they're supposed to be using. So that just mm -hmm. in your overnight period, it doesn't get like, um, auctioned off to other parts. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, but I've, I've listened to a little bit of Aubrey Marcus and Blue's um, discussion of this, but I also know somebody in town here that did the darkness retreat and he was telling me like, you know, he was seeing, feeling, you know, these things were real, like absolutely real um, to him, wow. it just as real as anything else. And so, um, yeah, it's, I think it lines up with, with this. I think it's interesting is maybe that's a sign that civilization has peaked when we've got to pay money to be thrown back into the <laughs> darkness to experience what we did for millions of years before yeah. we had uh, well, this, tools. This was actually one of, when, when I was listening, reading the immortality key um, by Brian Murrescu, which was about how the Eucharist was likely a adapt, adaptation of you know, a psychedelic and adaptation of the Eleusinian mysteries, the Dionysian rites, um, and then got changed to a placebo by the Catholic church. But he was talking about some of the early philosophers. I think Pythagoras was, um, his method for accessing mystical states was you lie down in a dark cave for three days and don't move. Um, mm. and 
this. Yeah, so there's many different ways to get into these altered states. When One last thing, and then we'll get into the plan of salvation. Um, I got back into lucid dreaming, trying to get back into lucid dreaming last year. I'd done a bit as a, a teenager. And what I found was fascinating was one of the induction methods, because there's a few different ways to induce it. One of which is you like go to sleep, set an alarm for like an hour before me, when you'd usually wake up and then you wake up and then you walk around for a little bit and then go back to sleep and you launch right back into REM sleep and remember your dream uh, more easier. But there were, one of the methods was called wild, wake induced lucid dreaming. And this method, I never got it to work. I didn't actually have any lucid dreams this time around when I tried it last year, but this was a method that allowed you to go straight into a lucid dream without falling asleep. And so you were supposed to wake up and then stay there and kind of do this yoga nidra sort of, uh, or maybe it wasn't, maybe not yoga nidra, but you just kind of stay there and like yeah. periodically keep your conscious awareness, but let your body go to sleep. And then you'd often have some sleep paralysis. And then you would, after a certain amount of time, you were supposed to try to do one of these reality checks. And if it failed, then you could just supposedly use like an out of body experience, sort of like pulling yourself out from your body and then go straight into a lucid dream, which wow. for people that aren't familiar with lucid dreaming is when you're aware that you're dreaming and then you can do essentially whatever you want. But, but yeah, this is an actual induction technique yeah. that people do. I never got to work, but it, I mean, it, it gets weird because you're passing straight from waking awareness to a dream state without yeah. going through that hard um, threshold of falling asleep. Uh, wow. Yeah. I'd have to uh, spend some more time looking at that to see. I, I don't know what, you know, initially my thoughts of lucid dreaming are all just kind of the typical one on the fly or, mm -hmm. um, you know, just fly through space. Basically. <laughs> I, I wonder what, controls you would actually have in that situation. Uh, well, we've talked about this, I think on the last episode that it can vary from yeah, having a lot more control. State. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so plan of salvation. Yeah. So we left off right before we talked about the pre mortal existence. Uh, so next would be the creation. Um, here's a quote by, so D. Michael Quinn uh, said, in a clear misrepresentation of the English language understanding of the Kabbalah in the early 1800s, again, the Kabbalah is the mystical form of Judaism, um, he says Hamblin has also written, and Hamblin was one of the apologists that he was saying, uh, was trying to downplay the connection with the Kabbalah. So Hamblin has also written, quote, although the Zohar, which is their text, has a complicated understanding of creation by emanation, its fundamental understanding of bara is to create ex nihilo, which is creation from nothing, by con uh, end quote. By contrast, Allen's study of the Kabbalah explained this matter to English and American readers of Joseph Smith's generation. So this is what was written during Joseph Smith's time, what he would have been or could have been familiar with. Quote, one, from nothing, nothing can be produced. This is the foundation of the principal point of the whole Kabbalistic philosophy and of all the emanative system. Two, there is no essence or substance. Therefore, Therefore, which has proceeded from nothing or been created out of nothing. End quote. It was the concept of creation nihil ex nihilo. End quote. 
compare this English language understanding of the Kabbalah in the early 1800s with Smith's rejection of creation ex nihilo. Quote, you ask the learned doctors, so this is Joe Smith, you ask the learned doctors why they say the world was made out of nothing, and they infer from the word create that it must have been made out of nothing. Now, the word create came from the word borrow, which does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to organize. Hence, we infer that God had materials to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter, which is element. So, you know, Joseph Smith was against creation ex nihilo, this idea that you create matter from nothing. And Dimechelkoy just talked about how this whole focusing on the word borrow, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, and this rejection of ex nihilo creation is exactly uh, what Kabbalistic um, doctrine teaches. And then another quote from him, Allen's publication on the Kabbalah in the early 1800s was also very close to some of Smith's re revelatory statements. Continuing the previously quoted discussion, Allen explained, quote, uh, point five, hence it follows in Kabbalistic philosophy that there is no such essence as matter, properly so-called in the universe. Six, the conclusion deducible from these premises is that all that exists is spirit. And point seven, this spirit is uncreated, eternal, intellectual, sentient, possessing inherent life and motive power, filling immensity and self-existing by necessity of nature. And so this is very similar although kind of reversed of what Joseph Smith taught. So Joseph Smith taught that all spirit, all spiritual things are matter, which is a very fine, refined form of matter. This is, I mean, this is just kind of semantics, but Kabbalistic philosophy says that everything is, there is no matter, it's all spirit, which is what, you know, quantum physics says. Um, and that all that exists is spirit and that spirit always exists and and, and this exactly lines up with what Joseph Smith thought about intelligences, you know, that intelligences are neither created or, nor destroyed, but they always exist. So, um, and then another quote here, uh, another evidence for the influence of John Allen's book is Smith's use of the technical word coeval, meaning of the same duration of existence or coexistent. In 1816 and 1830, Allen used coeval in his discussion of the nature of God in the Kabbalah and Zohar. Five months after quoting a statement about the Zohar as editor of Times and Seasons, editor Joseph Smith in 1842 used the phrase co-eval with their existence. Concerning Smith's King Follett discourse of April 1844, Lewis C. Zucker wrote, quote, the sermon was taken down by four faithful and trained reporters, but their composite record was not free from errors. Ira N. Hayward has pointed out that the recorded statement the mind or intelligence which man possesses is co-equal with God himself should probably read co-eval with God himself, end quote. In other words, the Mormon scribes mistook Smith's spoken use of co-eval in the 1844 sermon for the similar sounding co-equal, which was a more familiar word to the scribes. The Times and Season demonstrates that 18 months before the King Follett discourse, Smith was using the phrase co-eval with their existence. So I think that's... Uh, interesting that Joseph Smith was already using this word coeval, which I guess is stating that we existed as long as God existed and that that is likely what he was saying in the King Follett discourse. In the King Follett discourse, so this is where Joseph Smith thought that as God is now, man may become 
as God, as man is now, God once was. So this mm -hmm. idea of progression of God. So it was really radical. It was right before Joseph Smith's death. And in that sermon too, I think he says something along the lines of like, I could preach to you from other books, but you're going to say it's hearsay if I do. So I'll use the Bible. So he's definitely, I mean, he's referencing the fact that he's integrating and bringing in a lot of other uh, mm -hmm. sources, but he's limited by kind of the limited minds of the saints. Yeah. And I think we mentioned in a previous episode that I, I think Joseph Smith was definitely exposed to a lot of ideas that kind of were condensing on him. And then he was able to articulate them through that lens of restorationism among, you know, from the Christian perspective, but as restoration, because he was finding truth in other places and had to reconcile it with what he had. Um, he, we know he was really interested in Egypt and we know that he was reading and studying Hebrew and, uh, probably exposed to uh, Kabbalah and with the Mason connection alone, I think there's a lot of uh, like the Kabbalion itself was uh, written, suspected to be written by a Mason. I believe uh, the, it's authored as the three initiates, but I guess there was a, a Mason guy that actually wrote it. And I think Joseph Smith was probably connected to a lot of those ideas because that first uh, principle of the Kabbalion being all is mind, kind of what we're talking about, that it, Joseph Smith saying all is, uh, all matter is spirit, or at least uh, spirit matters matter, just very refined. And that makes me think about like different uh, frequencies of vibration, where this idea of Hinduism, ancient Hinduism, or I, I think it was teachings from the Vedas, actually, which mentioned that... Um, all is vibration, which is also a Kabbalian principle, all is vibration. And so I think there are different frequencies of vibration that matter exists on that, uh, well, just even the forms that we know them it, uh, like on our planet, um, that, that we can, inter that we can at least see that we have instruments to at least see light waves. Uh, right from radio frequencies and uh, x-rays, gamma rays, the light spectrum. And it, there's, I don't have the quote with me, but um, in the piece that I wrote in the Substack article or episode two, I drew the connection between, you know, there's this new age principle of like vibration and, and people, um, people are dismissive of that. But again, it's just some trying to express something uh, with the uh, words, the contracts we have, but Joseph Smith in the doctrine of covenants, there was a verse that was very similar to that. Like as you increase in glory and brightness to the noonday sun or something, you know, he talks about this increasing in brightness as we gain enlightenment or exaltation that I mean, it's the same thing. Increasing brightness is very parallel to that. Um, yeah. For people that aren't familiar, the Kabbalion is a book in early 1900s that says it's hermeneutic. Hermetic, hermetic uh, principles, which people dispute as to whether it's like true, true hermeticism, um, but hermeticism is a you know another esoteric principle that um, is claimed to come from Egypt and Hermes Trismegistus. But it, whether it's actual true hermeticism or kind of a evolution of hermeticism, um, it's got some 
very interesting and esoteric principles that fall under these teachings and idealism. Um, so the, the creation of the world. So Joseph is talking about how it's organization, organization of chaos. And this is, you know, this is what the temple ceremony talks about in the book of Moses, which is supposedly the translation of, um, the inspired translation of, uh, Genesis, this idea that there's like chaos that is organized into matter. That's not created, but is organized into matter. And to me, it's actually, it's interesting, uh, raw in the law of one that those channeled works from 1980s has a, one of their sessions talks about the creation is very similar, similar to the temple ceremony is talking about just kind of infinite, uh, intelligence that's polarizing itself and kind of organizing chaos into worlds. Um, it's very similar to the temple ceremony, but I also see the parallel to being born and learning constructs. I mean, when you're born as a baby, you, you don't know what anything is. You don't, you know, you are basically a scrambled mess of wires, all sensory input, you're a blank slate. So like sound, touch, smell, you know, none of these things are mapped up onto correctly on your brain. You're just kind of getting all these things mainlined. You're experiencing as close to like a base reality as you could. And it's through your development that you finally start to, um, and it's really fascinating to read childhood development uh, stuff about you, you know, this feeling that you get that's uncomfortable, you have a certain response to it. And then your parents give you food um, that you don't know it as milk yet. And then that feeling goes away. And so you start mapping these feelings and these emotions onto different states and visual things. And so it's very much an organization of chaos into constructs. You know, we're taking these ineffable uh, things and we are putting a label on it. You know, we do that with people, you know, we're, we make a construct of them in our mind. Uh, we call an apple something that is, mm -hmm. you know, indescribable. We call it an apple and we kind of, we all agree what it is, but I, I see a lot of parallels in the creation of the world to just the, yeah. the development of us from babies. And that's what, you know, psychedelics and meditation, the part of the, mechanism of action as you read in Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind is that it turns off. It takes you back to the child mind where you're just more experiencing the present moment without all the labels. And, um, yeah, so that's one of the, yeah, it's like we create the filter for ourselves that we experience reality through based on inputs from the outside world and making meaning with like that, the, uh, there's uh, Jordan Peterson in his book maps of meaning talks about this idea where a vase glass vase doesn't mean anything to a baby. Baby crawls over, grabs the glass vase as it's about to like tip it off of the table. The mom comes in and says, I'm paraphrasing here. The mom says something like, no, 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 that's mommy's vase. Don't touch that. So suddenly the vase becomes mommy's vase. It has meaning. It's something that I'm not to touch. It's something that before it was 
where was the vase and where did, where did the table stop and the vase begin to the baby? There was no distinction probably until grabbing it, experiencing it, moving and the, the mom giving suddenly ascribing meaning to what it is. Hmm. Um, there's, there's an interesting story that I like from, um, have you heard of Dan Siegel and in interpersonal neurobiology? Mm -mm. So interpersonal neurobiology, it's not a method of therapy, but it's kind of a framework of psychology or inter interpersonal neurobiology where he, he talks about the kind of these concept of, I think I may have talked about it earlier, uh, Miwi, you know, instead of, a you know, an I and a you, but there's a me and then there's a we, and he mm -hmm. talks about kind of um, how much we overlap, you know, the mirror neurons, how much we co-regulate each other. Um, but he, um, he's very into, uh, a lot of these concepts, um, for a very scientific view, but he, he showed an interesting story on a podcast I was listening to where he was in the Peace Corps, I believe, and he was riding a horse, um, I think in Mexico and he got, uh, thrown off the horse and dragged for a while. And so, you know, got a pretty significant injury. Then he had temporary amnesia where he just didn't know who he was. And he also lost basically all constructs. And so he was back into like a baby, um, mind. And so he just talked about how, but he could remember, he remembered his experience from that. And so he, they were giving him water and giving him a cup of water. And he just, you know, he didn't experience a cup and he didn't experience water, but he was just like mesmerized by the beauty of the water and the mm. cup. And, but they weren't, you know, we, we develop these shortcuts in our mind. You know, we see a dog and it's like a dog, right? But then because we use that icon for the dog, uh, mindfulness is like deconstructing it to like, oh, it's a, like, like the fur, the tail, the manner of it. And so, yeah, we, we live in a world of constructs, but we often totally. are not aware of it. And yet how much of the dog do we actually see? Right. You can only see whatever side of the dog you happen to be looking at. There's an inside to the dog. There's all of, mm -hmm. there's the other side of the dog from wherever you're currently at. Um, we, we see, we see actually very little of what the world really is all made of on a day to day basis. And yet we use all those labels and all the, the constructs to navigate it. It would be impossible to navigate without it. Or at least it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be consciously navigating it at the same level that we're consciously navigating it. Other mm -hmm. things navigate it without the labels. They just do it off of, uh, I think instinct and, um, just a different, different state of consciousness. Yeah. And I, and I don't think the purpose is to, or the goal is to be like free of constructs. It's to be aware that everything that you're operating in is constructs and also have the flexibility to, I mean, we spent all this time in development creating these constructs so that we can understand and make sense of the world. And then once we get to, we get to a certain point where we start having to work backwards and deconstruct all the things, um, and give us the ability to operate in a world of constructs, but then also to shift to mindfulness and deconstruct things. And this goes, mm -hmm. you know, this is what I think Christ was talking about when he said, you know, that you have to become as a child to enter into the kingdom of heaven, which I think 
you know, many people interpret as like the kingdom of heaven is a state of consciousness and not a place or a destination. Yeah. Um, it's, it could be right where you are right at any mm -hmm. moment in the right state of consciousness. Yeah. I think there's a, a saying that Nirvana is a breath away, you know, it's mm -hmm. really at any moment you can make it there. Well, and I think that part of that, you must be a child. You must become as a child is, um, like children's sense of wonder about mm -hmm. the, just the experience itself of life without knowing the details, just the wonder of it. Because I think as adults, I've gotten so much caught up into the details that I found that I've let some of the wonder slip. And when I get closer to the actual wonder of it, then I feel like I'm more in that present moment when that happens. And I'm probably closer to that state of consciousness where the kingdom of heaven can be found, something like that. Yeah. And I, I have a two year old and, uh, several months back when it was one, I remember he, you know, he's in this state where he's figuring out what things are. And I remember he learned what event was and it was amazing to watch, you know, we'd go down the stairs and he'd be like vent. And he was, <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was the best thing for him is that he recognized event and just having that like connection. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, we grow to need things to be a certain way, but, um, we can, there is a way that we can access a sense of being where we yeah. don't need things to be a, a certain way. There's beauty in every moment. Uh, so Abraham three talks about, you know, the, pre-moral existence, this, uh, before the creation that there's these noble and great ones, these, these spirits that were kind of gathered together and you've got different callings and roles and, um, that they would fulfill, you know, for, for ordination, um, to come down here. So I, we, we have discussed this before, but this to me, the, the new age movement has this concept of star seeds. And to me, this is a, a maps very much onto this, uh, concept in Abraham three. So I asked chat GPT to summarize this concept and it, it said the new age concept of star seeds suggests that certain individuals on earth have originated from other planets or star systems and have volunteered to incarnate on earth to assist with its spiritual evolution. They are believed to have advanced souls, unique talents, and a strong sense of purpose that sets them apart from the general population. According to this belief, the creation of earth and the consciousness here is part of a larger cosmic plan. And these star seeds are here to help awaken humanity to its true potential and purpose. They are seen as emissaries of higher consciousness, bringing with them knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual gifts that can help others awaken to their true nature. Many star seeds believe that they have a mission to help bring about a shift in consciousness on earth, moving humanity towards a more spiritually evolved state. This may involve working to heal the planet, promoting love and unity among people or spreading awareness of the interconnectedness of all things. Overall, the concept of star seeds, the new age m movement suggests that humanity is not alone in the universe, and that there are beings from other planets and star systems who are here to help us on our spiritual journey. So, I mean, this sounds very much like people's patriarchal blessings. It sounds like these talks that you hear about, you know, this is a chosen generation, like you, you know, chose to come here at this time. Um, kind of the white horse prophecy stuff about how constitution is going to hang by a thread and it's going to be the priesthood of the church. that's going to hold it together. 
I, th- I see a lot of parallels here. And I mean, there's also parallels to, if you go even deeper in this, that star seeds are generally, you know, in the, in the mythology of new age thought, there are certain star systems that are more advanced and positive polarity at Pleiades and Sirius. And we had uh, discussed uh, previous episode that, you know, some of the apologists link up Kolob with Sirius because KLB is the Semitic word for dog and Sirius is the dog star. Sirius is also the most important, you know, one of the most important stars in Egypt um, with Kolob coming out of Abraham, the book of Abraham, which was supposedly a record of Abraham when he was in Egypt. Um, so there's, even without this idea of a star seed, there's already apologists for the church saying, hey, this is evidence of the divinity of the book of Abraham because Kolob is serious. And yeah, in new age belief, you know, a lot of these star seeds come from Sirius or from Pleiades. And, and Joseph Smith in the King Paul Discourse was essentially talking about, hey, we, you know, we've got a God on Kolob. Um, it may not have mentioned Kolob in King Paul Discourse, but we've got a God that is our God and he's kind of mm-hmm. running our show, but he's just one of many other gods. So it goes back to this fractal uh, nature of the universe. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's so much parallels between Starseeds and Abraham three. And it's not like new age people. Um, I don't, most of them don't know anything about Mormonism. They're certainly not copying Mormonism, yeah. but these have kind of evolved uh, separately, but to the same place, which I think, uh, is points to how Mormonism has sort of like a, a white label, um, very early, you know, predecessor to new age, what we call new age now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, all those things are just kind of echoing through different, uh, outlets or different filters, different because one thing for me that has changed in the last couple of years is what I described where before I held Mormonism on this pedestal being self-proclaimed as the only true church upon the face of the earth with which God is pleased, right? The, that growing up, it certainly was uh, constantly kind of repeated. And I certainly believed that the the Mormon church, at least the Brighamite or the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints being like the one true church. And what's happened is rather than say that it's false and all the other churches are false too, it's more like religion is just carrying the echoes of all of these things. And uh, Mormonism's connections that you're finding and we're looking at with new age ideas, with the creation story or the garden of Eden can be thought of, very much as an individuation process or the, the symbology around Jesus Christ and kind of the things that we've been talking about the last couple episodes. It's like um, the believing perspective might say that, sure, New Age has that spin on it. Well, that would be a counterfeit of the adversary. That's a counterfeit of the adversary is what maybe I would have said in my more believing days uh, say if I was on a mission or something and heard and heard this narrative, this this correlation where we're saying new age ideas about star seeds lines up pretty closely with uh, pre-mortal life and the chosen generation kind of narrative and 
coming down to earth and having help from other beings still beyond the veil. And uh, so that must be the, you know, the devil's perspective or the, the, uh, the Satan's counterfeit. But what happens when God comes, when God, when God fail, uh, is no longer an external thing, but becomes an internal thing, then that happens with Satan too. Satan is no longer an external thing. Like I think you mentioned in an episode ago that bad things you do can have some, you know, blame on Satan, good things get some credit to God. But when those are externally, you're giving out that credit or that responsibility when they're internal, then it's all you. And, um, yeah, that's fascinating that, that it would be considered a counterfeit because I think it's probably, um, much less a counterfeit than just an echo, like it's echoing through all of these other kind of languages. Religion can be viewed, I think, as a language and languages evolve over time and they get informed by other parts of other places where they're spoken on borders with other kind of languages they can get like mixed up um, or yeah. they, they can become hybridized a little bit over time i think religions do the same thing and so this is just jesus uh, sorry joseph smith altering the language of christianity through the lens of the other things he was seeing through freemasonry through uh esoteric ideas and kabbalah ideas and uh and like hybridizing the language of christianity for the future neil a maxwell said mormonism was christianity for the space age hmm. because it gave more yeah more gods unlimited planets unlimited people and i think i think that's the seeing these things as validation of mormonism is the initial reaction especially when you want to keep that together um, i think when you go further down the rabbit hole and you're open to you know if you have real intent you realize that um, it actually goes the other way whereas mormonism has mormonism kind of the counterfeit or the early prototype of these concepts now that are much further evolved and a lot more internally consistent uh, because you can take these this whole framework that we're presenting and it does you know explain like we talked about you know explains these paranormal events that people have it explains some of these you know paranormal psychology um, research uh, it explains you know, psychedelics and these altered states of consciousness explain a lot of things that happen in the, the church and still have a spiritual aspect to it. You know, it lines in with quantum physics and, and philosophy and, you know, the new age thought teaches reincarnation, not in the sense that you're, um, you're coming back as an animal, um, but reincarnation, which you know, from a materialist perspective seems very, silly and preposterous, uh, but from idealism and the ideas that there's a universal consciousness that's kind of fractalizing its down, fractalizing itself down that our brains are little filters of this consciousness. And there's this, you know, intelligence aren't, aren't created or destroyed, um, that there's an aspect of consciousnesses not ending at death, but, you know, coming back around. And the fact that Joseph Smith, who we'll talk about soon, taught uh, reincarnation, you know, there's accounts of him teaching reincarnation because that's um, something that he appears to have picked up from uh, Kabbalistic uh, teachings. Uh, reincarnation is present in New Age philosophy, but not really fleshed out in Mormonism. 
although Joe Smith seems to have taught it and a couple uh, apostles after him taught it. The fact that the temple ceremony lines up with the Eleusinian mysteries, which had psychedelics in it and psychedelics and near-death experiences are all have a lot of overlap and, and work into an inter, you know, an internally consistent framework, whereas Mormonism, it's better than main, mainstream Christianity, but it breaks down at the edges. So, um, so yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk about that, that a bit more, but I think that's, yeah, there's a lot of overlap and you can go in two different ways. One that, oh, these are counterfeits, but it does make sense that the counterfeit actually in the end is a more evolved and consistent philosophy. Um, and it's still spiritual. So I think that I would say that the restoration, yeah, you can view it as a restoration. And then I think, uh, it went off the rails with Brigham Young. Cause there's a, you know, Joseph Smith is, you know, really radically changing things up until the months before he died. And then you get to Brigham Young. I was listening to, a, a debate on midnight Mormons the other day. And there was somebody part of the remnant movement was that was saying that, you know, the church is in apostasy and, and with Brigham Young, he was very uh, antagonistic and uh, didn't like, you know, I didn't feel like that did him justice, but he was just bringing up, he was like, Brigham Young, you know, here, here are his biggest five contributions to the church. Uh, these doctrines, like they've all been repudiated, blood atonement, uh, the mark of uh, Cain, you know, blackness being the mark of Cain, um, Adam God theory, and I uh, forget one other one. But they just pointed out that like Brigham Young had his own things that he tried to add on, but uh, it just got shut down. Like it, it really hasn't evolved since, hasn't evolved in the way that Joseph, it was evolving during Joseph Smith's time. Yeah. It did evolve in a more corporate um, lockdown uh, rules. Correlated, yeah. Correlated, yep. Um, so next concept. Exactly. So there's a creation and then in kind of the individual souls uh, perspective, the uh, next concept is this idea of a veil. So you want to explain the Mormon concept of the veil? Yeah, the Mormon concept of the veil is that there's a uh, some kind of mechanism that prevents us from remembering the pre-mortal life where we lived with our heavenly parents. And this veil of forgetfulness, as it's sometimes called, or otherwise just kind of the divider between maybe the land of the living and the land of the dead or those that have gone on or beyond the veil those that haven't yet come to earth or beyond the veil on the other side of the veil um, so it's this um, yeah this kind of I guess mechanism for the testing experience primarily where life is the narrative of it as being kind of a test test of our faithfulness to God and part of that test would be basically for us all to have no recollection of the events before being born so that we'd come in with a, a, apparently a fair way to know whether our faithfulness that we exude is sufficient and not just some form of memory or something else that we're relying on, that we create it or that we, I guess, uh, develop it on yeah. our own in, you know, in mortality. And so here is ChatGPT. Uh, describing concept of veil and new age beliefs, as well as near death experiences, which you know, lines up pretty well with uh, new age um, beliefs. So in new age beliefs, the veil is a term used to describe the separation between the physical world and the spiritual world. It is believed to be a barrier that limits our awareness and perception of spiritual reality. 
The veil is seen as a sort of illusion that keeps us from fully realizing our true nature and the interconnectedness of all things. One aspect of the veil in New Age beliefs is the idea that we forget knowledge from existence prior to our birth. According to this belief, our souls come into this physical existence with a certain level of knowledge and understanding. But as we are born into this world, we forget much of what we knew before. This forgetting is seen as a necessary part of our spiritual journey as it allows us to experience life with fresh eyes and to learn and grow in new ways. Near-death experiences are often, or NDEs are often seen as a way in which the veil can be temporarily lifted, allowing us to glimpse a higher level of consciousness and spiritual reality. People who have had NDEs often report experiencing a sense of unity with all things and a feeling of being connected to a larger spiritual reality. Some NDE experiences also involve a sense of remembering knowledge from before birth, as if a veil has been lifted to reveal a deeper level of understanding. Overall, the concept of the veil in New Age beliefs and NDEs suggests that there is much more to reality than we can perceive with our physical senses and that we are capable of accessing higher levels of consciousness and spiritual understanding. The idea of forgetting knowledge from existence prior to birth is seen as a natural part of our spiritual journey, but NDEs and other experiences can offer glimpses of what lies beyond the veil and remind us of our true nature. So again, a lot, a lot of parallels. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's not like new age is copying uh, Mormonism. And I don't know that many other, I haven't heard of the veil talked about in many other religious traditions. Um, so that seems somewhat unique to Mormonism and yeah. uh, new age near death experiences. Um, so yeah, the plan of salvation, the, the point is that we're, we're spirits that want to become, you know, God wants us to become like him. And, but to do that, we need to get a body because God has a body and we need to be tested. So, um, somewhat similar to new age belief is that this idea that like there's infinite intelligence, the cosmos, everything that is trying to experience itself. Um, and so it kind of fractalizes itself to interact with itself and, um, and that we're coming down here to earth to experience all these, um, things that can only be experienced at this level on this like plane of reality. So we are born and there, you know, one of the concepts in this, one of the big aspects in this life is sin, which is doing things that are contrary to God. Um, in Mormonism, uh, there in the plan of salvation, there's these laws of the universe, justice and mercy. And there's these two big problems that happen, you know, that were that happen because we're down here. One is that there's death because Eve ate the fruit. You know, we are going to die. And that's a problem because we need to get a body. We need to have a body to be like God. So we need to overcome that death. And the other, um, problem is sin because sin is, you know, impure and nothing impure can, uh, be in the presence of God. So because of these laws of justice and mercy, you know, the ways to solve these are the resurrection solves the problem of death and everybody's going to get resurrected. Um, that's because Christ was resurrected and then, uh, to overcome sin, there's, you know, sin has to be paid for. So we have to, you know, justice has to be served, but then there's also mercy. Um, that's a law. And so Christ is able to satisfy justice because he's paying for the sin. And then we, then he's extending mercy to us, but we have to accept him. Um, so, 
and that, that's kind of similar to these, you know, uh, in new age thought, you know, I'm particularly thinking of the lob one, which is the, again, the stuff channeled in the eighties. I think there are five books about, you know, this collective consciousness, um, raw, uh, it talks a lot about these things. It talks about these laws of the universe, the law of one, which is the ultimate law that everything is one. Um, but he talks about that law of confusion, which is this idea that we have to be tested and we're not going to, you know, we have to have faith. And so there's similarly laws in new age thought, um, death. Uh, so the definition of death is that the spirit separates from the physical body. Um, and then after death, there's the spirit prison. So this is kind of this period of remediation people, you know, because more, you know, one thing I liked about Mormonism is that it had a very, you know, it was very logical and that you had to do these certain things. Uh, but then it also had a way for, you had to be baptized. You had to believe in Christ, accept Christ, but unlike mainstream Christianity, you know, it was just everybody who was going to have the opportunity, but that's obviously not going to happen in this life for everybody. And so in, you know, before judgment, there's this place called spirit prison where people are going to be taught the gospel, but then you still had to have these physical ordinances. So that's where the temples are. So there's, um, I mean, it sort of works out, but so there's a spirit prison where people are going to be taught the gospel. Um, but in, in Mormonism, and maybe this would be considered, I don't know if this would be considered doctrine or, you know, beliefs, but it was fairly commonly believed that it's more difficult to progress in this spirit prison. So if you smoke on earth with a physical body, it's going to be harder. Have you heard this? Yeah. And I've always heard it framed around a chapter in the book of Mormon. I think Alma chapter 34, it might be where, um, basically if you're, when you die, whatever you were, whatever you, uh, kind of were after or addicted to or were connected with, you're going to have those same cravings or appetites or passions mm -hmm. or desires in that spirit prison, yet you won't have the mortal body to satiate them. So it would be a special type of torture as you have to learn the lessons that you failed to during the, uh, you know, and that's where the, I think the scripture also says something about um, that the day of your probation is while you're alive. Mm -hmm. The emphasis on the importance because there's that part that's like i had a friend who at the age of eight you know his parents wanted to get baptized and he's like this doesn't make any sense why don't i just wait until like i'm about to die because then i can do whatever i want get baptized then i'm clean right for as i go and that's too logical dang it um, yeah yeah so i um yeah i was reading one of the books i read this last month was many lives many masters by brian weiss um, have you heard of it? I think I mentioned a little bit to you. You've mentioned it to me. Yeah. Yeah. So Brian Weiss, I think this is a couple of decades ago. Brian Weiss was a, I think a Harvard trained psychiatrist, psychiatrist or psychologist. I think he was a psychiatrist though, because he, I believe talked about prescribing medications to people. Um, so he was a psychiatrist that was referred a patient that was just not progressing and she was really struggling with, um, her life. And so he, he didn't believe any of this stuff. Um, and, but he used hypnosis, um, which I used to think was not a legit thing, but it totally is. And, um, and is very effective. Um, it's different than just the staged hypnosis, but 
he used hypnosis on her and he was, you know, regressing her back to like early childhood, um, events that triggered these things. And he did get back to some, there was some sexual abuse, I think from her dad. Um, and then he was like, I want to go further back. And he he, uh, went to a previous life and he was like, what is going on here? And like, he, it, he didn't know what to think of it. He kind of rolled with it, but he, this was not on his radar at all. He'd never experienced it before. And so he just, it kind of, it, um, rocked his world because he had to, figure this stuff out real quick as he went through this journey with her. Um, and he kept going back through other lives and other lives and, you know, some of the lives that show up again. And there was, you know, just inexplicable stuff that, um, she was remembering that, you know, applied to stuff that was going on in her life. But, um, he was also in, uh, some of her past lives too, as different, uh, different people. And then there's some weird stuff too in it that she started experiencing these synchronicities, um, this little tangent, but so she was going, you know, she was having these experiences and it was really helping her progress. Finally having these regressions, uh, past life regressions. And yeah, she, so she started having all these synchronicities. Um, she took her dad who didn't believe these things, you know, she's telling her dad about these experiences. Uh, she took him to the racetrack uh, horse racing track and she bet on every horse and she won every time. And so she and her dad was like floored and she brought all the tickets into, uh, her next session and showed, uh, Brian Weiss this. And I guess she gave the money away to somebody, the first person that looked like they needed it there, but she was having all these weird things. And then he started having weird phenomena act, uh, happening in his life. Um, but so she would remember the past lives when she regressed, but then there are these in between live states, uh, that show up in these uh, past life regressions. Um, and when she was in between lives, it was kind of this review of the life and getting some more instruction, kind of a rest period. She, she wouldn't remember those when she came out of hypnosis. And he had to record some and let her listen to some, but she didn't, uh, yeah, she, it kind of spooked her out. So she didn't really want to know what was going on, but she, in these between live areas that would sometimes show up in the session, she would channel what he'd call ascended masters and these kind of different entities that were guides, um, sort of like angels and the higher states of consciousness. And it was really interesting as, as I was listening to this, that they, he launched it, this whole thing, you know, one of the, one of the experiences, the ascended masters were talking about how it's a lot more difficult to progress spiritually, uh, because it's a lot easier to learn things in the physical realm. So I thought it was yeah. interesting that it's, it's the same stuff. Um, that, that is interesting. Teaches. Well, and I think about reincarnation and not necessarily that I, die and come back as a new person. Like as soon as I die, I'm reborn as a new human or not that I die and become like a worm, but what I'm made of becomes something else Mm -hmm. breaks down. There's this, these thermodynamic laws about energy, uh, and being changed, never destroyed or created. And, uh, maybe there's this, what if this spirit prison is, all of the time it is until all of those parts are back into another person. Um, yeah. I, I used know, to think it's like when some kind of hell until you're at the higher <laughs> level of consciousness again, 
from the bottom of the stack, like a totem pole, you got to work your way back up to the top. Well, I, uh, I, when, after I kind of checked out the church, I really, I put everything on aside and I was like, I, I don't know. None of these narratives really make sense. I mean, I know the truth claims don't add up. CS letters didn't really impress me much, but I was like, oh, I'll just probably never figure anything out. Um, but I mean, I look back and I realize like I was, I was figuring these things out. And I remember having these concepts of like, well, maybe we're like leaves on a tree where, you know, we come off, we can get recycled back in, but the tree still lives. And like, we're part of this tree. And I was, you know, I remember talking to my friend about these things. And I also this idea of like, yeah, you know, we, all these different frameworks, um, you know, we're physical bodies and then we die and yeah, we get incorporated into the earth that gets incorporated into other things. So like from a materialist perspective, yeah, like we do continue on, but then even from like a mental perspective too, I was thinking like, well, you know, we have kids and they, we exist in their minds, you know, they, they learn to model us in their minds. And so we also continue on in that sense too. So I was making all these different analogies, other frameworks, but yeah, reincarnation, again, if you view it from a materialist perspective, it sounds weird and implausible, but hopefully we've made the case that materialism um, is just its own construct that ultimately breaks down when you zoom really far into quantum physics, but from idealism, this idea that there's a universal consciousness and that we're all little aspects of it. Um, I think a good analogy of reincarnation is this idea that, yeah, like with Jung's idea of a collective unconscious, there's this database, um, and our experience is a query. It's a call to the database, you know, like, give me this file from the database and then um, different things mess with that query a bit. So, you know, psychedelics kind of change some of those terms to asterisks and it just pulls in a lot of other stuff there that you're experiencing different aspects. It's not filtered out of the whole database uh, or like you lift some of those filters. And so you get a lot of other stuff coming in, or there's just some glitches in the system where, um, you know, once you uh, archive a file, some of that stuff ends up in another file elsewhere. And there's, uh, you know, we're, we're going right into, um, this concept and Joseph Smith's teaching of it, but, uh, Ian Stevenson is a psychologist, um, at the university of Virginia school of medicine, and he heads up their division of perceptual studies. And they've studied like 3000 plus, uh, cases of kids that remember past lives and you know, he'll go out, meet them. He'll research the lives they remember. And, um, now there's pretty compelling evidence that these are actual, um, actual phenomenon that happen. And there's certain, uh, certain things that seem to cause it to be more common. You know, if the death was particularly violent, uh, of the previous person remembered, um, certain wounds that, uh, the person, you know, if the person died in a certain way, got a wound somewhere that like that would sometimes show up in different birthmarks and the kid and, um, a, this is, these reports are a lot more common in, 
cultures that believe in reincarnation, but it's interesting. I watched an episode, I think it's called, there's a series on Netflix called Surviving Death, I believe. And one of the episodes is on Ian Stevens's work. And um, he has, a, they do a couple cases of, you know, Western culture where these are Christian families and their kids starts remembering things and they, they do not want to believe reincarnation at all. And they eventually contact him and, um, and he comes out and he does the research and eventually these families, yeah, they don't have any other explanation for it. And so it's interesting to see how they kind of like, mm-hmm. well, I believe, you know, I believe in this, but you know, maybe this fits in somehow into Christianity. Um, so this ties into Mormonism. Um, so yeah, there's uh, before we get to that, there's the ordinances we talked about. You have to have baptism, endowment, temple marriage. Um, and then that's where there's some ordinances for the dead. So people that didn't get it in this life, they get preached to as spirits in spirit prison, but then they still need those physical ordinances. And so those are done in the temple. Um, and I think so this shows some of the integration, kind of putting things together on the fly that Joseph Smith did because in the Book of Mormon, which is really early on, he's talking about a very Trinitarian view of God, you know, that God and Jesus are one. Yeah. And it talks about that this time is the, this life is the time to do your work because once you're dead, it's it's over and you're judged. And it doesn't, you know, the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on any earth, uh, on the earth, and man would get nearer to God by abiding by his precepts and by any other. But interestingly enough, he didn't quote from the Book of Mormon much. And it also doesn't talk about three degrees of glory. It doesn't talk about eternal marriage. It doesn't talk about a lot yeah, of the core principles. Dualistic heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Book of Mormon covers that very strongly. About Yeah. And then... Then he's got, you know, Doctrine and Covenant 76, where he sees the three degrees of glory. And, um, you know, he's he's already taught that, like, baptism is a must. Um, then he sees in a vision that his brother Alvin's in the celestial kingdom. And he's like, wait, how does this happen? Because Alvin wasn't baptized. And so he's got to kind of retrofit. Well, there has to be a way to, you know, make these things work. And so then baptisms for the dead are introduced um, and then, you know, there's the sealing ordinance that's introduced in Nauvoo. And at first, you know, people are just getting sealed left and right to different people and that evolves. And so you definitely see the evolution of his theology, cosmology. And this is problematic because, um, people will look back and they'll, they'll say, oh, no, Joseph Smith didn't teach multiple probations or, uh, or, um, reincarnation because the book of Mormon says this, or, Oh, Joseph Smith didn't teach polygamy because why would he? Because the book of Mormon teaches this, but that's, you're presupposing that type of argument assumes that Joseph Smith is not evolving in his understanding and his cosmology. Yeah. And Um, it was pretty clear that he was evolving quite a bit all the way up until the very mm -hmm. end and incorporating these other ideas that were coming across his plate. I yeah. think, you know, so, one thing I wanted to revisit with uh, creation and not to drag us back that far, but, um, and, and this fractal nature of the universe where I see things as, uh, in many cases, things you can look at may represent a smaller picture of a, of a bigger subset or a bigger, farther up the fractal, kind of a similar image or a lot of similarities. 
exist that are reflected on that smaller scale and they can go in both directions. And so one of those is like you mentioned, this blank slate of a child waking up and this veil of forgetfulness, which feels like um, more like you're, like you said, you're just taking in information until there's enough meaning with all of the symbols and all the icons in the reality for you to make, uh, you know, make connections and form your ego and all of that. Um, that's somewhat like the history of humanity itself, where it just kind of emerges out of nothing. Like it's like, I think thinking back to as far as we can go with humanity, it's almost like you wake up in the morning and you have a day and then you have a night and, um, there's these periods of dark ages or these periods of, uh, enlightenment ages throughout history that are, get labeled as such and, uh, very much like a rhythm up and down. Um, and so when, when humanity has, uh, this history that just kind of appears and it comes through words, through written language, as we start to look back and see it, and then other symbology or even, uh, as far back as cave paintings or other kinds of really, really primitive creations of humans. That's, that is no different to, to me than like a, a child who experiences drawing on the walls and then creating things with clay and then more language they learn, the more definition they learn and more of that construct they build of reality. It's like I watched, I have three children and I watched them basically evolve maybe several millions, tens of millions of years of human evolution is represented in just a couple of years of them hmm. going from nothing because take that baby and go back 10 million years, or I, I'm definitely not quoting the years, right? Okay. Hmm. Of this stuff, but it's, let's just say a long time ago, you take that brand new baby, put them back. They could just be raised in that environment. Uh, maybe there's some evolutionary things that have gone on that would make it different. But from the perspective of how their mind gets shaped and how their culture gets shaped and who they are uh, is, from what I can tell, it would probably be pretty similar. So, yeah, hum humanity's evolution out of, let's say, the darkness of, of prehistory, the forget the beyond the veil of forgetfulness of human history itself. We don't even have recollection, right? We're scraping to the earth to try and figure out what what happened before we have record of things. And uh, that's very much like um, Eve, individually, each one of us comes from that. It's like, I'm told I was born on this day. Hmm. Uh, when's your birthday? Well, I'm told it's, you know, this day. I wasn't, I wasn't there hmm. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that there's parallels too in the fact that we, you know, it was, we are adults. We, now have to try to learn how to go back, you know, through meditation and mindfulness and on let go of some of the programming, whether it's because of depression, anxiety or whatnot, these scripts that we've told ourselves or these traumas. Um, similarly in society, society, you know, we are very, very confident. We've got things figured out with scientific materialism, um, but we've forgotten, you know, just in 100, 200 years, 300 years, you know, these really great scientists, um, Isaac Newton, other people very much reconciled, uh, alchemy and spiritual idealism, occult mm -hmm. stuff with science. And so we, and Christianity we, was a part of it all too. 
Yeah. And then just this, you know, the immortality key and the idea that we have, you know, our religion came from psychedelic origins and yet we are just rediscovering that now through research. That's so. the real restoration. You know, it's like the, um, the, there's this argument about whether the restoration is complete or whether it's ongoing. I think in the, maybe it's not a big argument, but I've, I've heard this idea of like, whether it's complete or it's ongoing. And Joseph Smith to me seems to have just been continuing to evolve what it was going to be. If he hadn't have died, how much, how many years more could he have led it? And what would it have, how drastically would it have changed that? Yeah. He could only speculate. Uh, if he continued to take in more ideas, he probably would have just continued to integrate. Yeah. All right. So this leads us to the concept of multiple probations, um, which is the Mormon fundamental Mormon, that's not really talked about in mainstream Mormonism, but um, term for reincarnation. So D. Michael Quinn in Mormonism and the early magic worldview, uh, I believe the title, said, by the time of his death in 1844, Joseph Smith had also reversed his prior rejection of the Kabbalah's doctrine of transmigration of the souls. Two of the women Smith secretly married as plural wives in the 1840s said that he privately affirmed reincarnation. Apostle, Apostle Lorenzo Snow said that, quote, his sister, the late Eliza R. Snow Smith, was a firm believer in the principle of reincarnation and that she claimed to have received it from Joseph the prophet, her husband, end quote. Presendia Huntington Buell, later Kimball, also affirmed her belief in, quote, plural probations, referring to a statement in confirmation by her polyandrous husband, Joseph Smith. In the 1840s, their polygamous relationship to the Mormon prophet was as secret as his conversion to reincarnation. So he had previously rejected the idea of transmigration of the souls, but then in, 18, late, uh, in the 1840s, um, when he's now studying with Alexander Niebauer, who um, was a convert from Kabbalah um, and is Obviously, you know, we've shown influencing this idea of Elohim and the council of the gods and the creation and um, this ascension to godhood is, has also converted him to um, multiple probation reincarnation. Here's another quote in January of 1846, just over a year and a half after the death of Joseph Smith. Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball ordained each other to act as a savior. They also vicariously ordained Joseph and Hiram to do the same. Um, so this was in the Nauvoo Temple. And I mean, this is an interesting, but I don't see any other way around this without reincarnation or multiple probations is that if Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball were telling each other that they were going to be saviors, yeah. that requires a perfect life and... You know, you have to come back on another planet. And so Joseph and Hiram could do the same. And so, the, and Joseph taught that, yeah, that you, that God was a savior on a world. And so there was some talk about that you had to become a savior and then become God. And I think some even talk about that the Holy Spirit was going to also progress and get a body at some point too. Um, well, in Hin Hinduism, as well as uh forms of Buddhism with how they view re uh, reincarnation, as I understand it, it's all about 
continuing to reincarnate until you can ascend and become fully enlightened and reach mm -hmm. nirvana at which point you're you no longer are required to do the reincarnation yep. you're no longer required to continue to try and and through and you could do that through uh like getting rid of all of the negative karma and collecting all positive karma and then other forms like sheikhism where they i believe where they view it as any karma good or bad is is you can't have it to ascend you have to get rid of it. it's all baggage hmm. good karma or bad karma it's all holding you back from ascending into the realm of the gods at which point you've broken the reincarnation chain interesting um this is uh heber c kimball in journal of discourses uh, he said what i so heber c kimball and orson pratt i believe were to the ones, yeah, two apostles from, you know, Joseph Smith's time that really continued on with this doctrine of reincarnation. He said in journalist courses, what I do not today, when the sun goes down, I lay down to sleep, which is typical of death. And in the morning I rise and commence my work where I left it yesterday. That course is typical of the probations we take. This day's work is typical of this probation and the sleep of every night is typical of death. And rising in the morning is typical of the resurrection. Brethren, this, yeah, this is the course we have to take. It is a progressive work from one day to another and from one week to another. And if we advance this year, we are so far advanced in preparation to better go through the next year. Then. Well, I also love the, uh, you know, Jesus Christ saying you must be born again. You must be born again, right? Commandment, like you must be born again and you, you could view it i think through the baptism lens that works that's fine from that perspective but i also think you can have entire lifetimes within a lifetime mm -hmm. because there could be enough change there could be enough upheaval there could be enough pain there could be a, there could be a death of enough of part of yourself certainly have felt that that a part of me has died in this transition or tr transformation of faith, this evolution of faith that a part of it has died. So a part of it will continue to echo through other, other parts are left behind, but it's, it is, uh, this could be described, I think as a death and then a rebirth, right? The Phoenix symbology of rising mm -hmm. from ashes. Yeah. And I viewed it the same way too, is that like, again, I hold reincarnation loosely as I think you have to do with mm -hmm. everything in idealism. Um, and yeah, I, mean, I feel I died last year and reborn, you know, much of psychedelics, prog um, you know, this, this death and rebirth is a theme in, you know, many Easter traditions and, um, psychedelic therapy. And so, yeah, it doesn't necessarily, it's not just talking about uh, well, and even the cells of our body that die and it take your body from 10 years ago and some micro tiny percentage of it or whatever is still the same parts mm -hmm. that were there 10 years ago. And I think those there there's early childhood development, which seems to, and I know very little about this, but it seems to be like those first seven, eight years of your life kind of have echoes throughout the rest of your life in those same kind of mm -hmm. like seven, eight year segments almost, uh, because it's all fractally experienced. You can zoom in on a day, a day could feel 
a day can be in many ways like a lifetime. A year can be in many ways like a decade. And, you know, the, the similarities of the things that could be connected across those. Hmm. Here is Heber C. Kimball in 1852. He says, how many shapes do you suppose you are put into before you, you become saints or before you become perfect and sanctified to enter into the celestial glory of God? You've got to be like that clay in the hands of the potter. Do you not know that the Lord directed the prophet anciently to go down to the potter's house to see a miracle on the wheel? Suppose the potter takes a lump of clay and putting it on the wheel goes to work to form it into a vessel and works it out this way and that way and the other way, but the clay is refractory and snappish. He still tries it, but it will break and snap and snarl, and thus the potter will work it and work it until he is satisfied he cannot bring it into the shape he wants, and it mars upon the wheel. He takes his tool then and cuts it off the wheel and throws it into the mill to be ground over again until it becomes passive. Don't you think you will go to hell if you are not passive? And after it is ground there are so many days and it becomes passive, he takes the same lump and makes of it a vessel unto honor. Now do you now do you see into that, brethren? I know the potters can. I tell you, brethren, if you are not passive, you will have to go into that mill and perhaps have to grind there 1,000 years, and then the gospel will be offered to you again. And then if you will not accept of it and become passive, you will have to go into the mill again, and thus you will have offers of salvation from time to time until all the human family, except the sons of perdition, are redeemed. The spirits of men will have the gospel as we do, and they are to be judged according to the men in the flesh. Let us be passive and take a course that will be perfectly submissive. I like this. This is, uh, yeah, very reminiscence, uh, reminiscent of, or connects with this idea of surrender and needing, not needing life to be a certain way and resisting, yeah. but just learning to be content, uh, as things are yeah buddhist. I, I, very much a buddhist idea right like letting go in buddhism uh life is suffering and suffering comes as a result of attachment and i think that's true on a lot of levels like how much of our unhappiness in the day is simply because of our expectations we expect our car to work but it breaks down on the way to work or something like so much of our day today is about attaching attachment to ideas and the expectations and the baggage in, in Buddhism, once you've freed yourself from attachments and you recognize that everything is one, then you become enlightened. And I'm sure it's more complicated than that in, you know, Buddhist doctrine, but that's a very basic idea, I think of it, the basic premise. And so it's um, kind of letting go. I was rafting a river uh, in a kayak with, uh, with my kids today and my wife and it occurred to me that it's actually in the easy water that you have to paddle really hard, but in the hard water, um, hmm. it's more about knowing kind of just how much to apply, but otherwise you've got to flow with the river. You really want to move with the river, not pretending to be a kayak person here because I've only done it a couple of times, but it was just an observation of like, man, when the water's easy and calm, if you want to move quickly, which we were just trying to get down the river and get back in the truck and, uh, you're, I'm like paddling hard. And I think in so many ways, um, like at, at the fractal level that happens with societies when we have it easy, it actually is when it's the most difficult. Uh, and then things get tough and you've got to flow with it, I think. Um, but anyway, those are, those, that's a really interesting quote. I think Orson Pratt in particular was someone who was really 
I think he loved the deep doctrine and wanted to understand and make all the connections to Mormonism. I think he was interested in astronomy, in ancient history, and Egypt. So that was Kimball, but yeah, Orspratt um, also taught this, and that's this next yeah. one too. Okay. I mean, both of those guys hmm. were pretty, probably really exposed to a lot of these same things that Joseph Smith was on some level. Yeah. Um, so it's D. Michael Quinn on Orson Pratt. In refutation, a year later, Apostle Orson Pratt used the term transmigration to describe the very process Young had denounced. In his periodical, The Seer, Pratt wrote, quote, there was an endless duration and each particle of our spirits had an eternal existence and was in possession of eternal capacities. A transmigration of the same particles of spirit from a lower to a higher organization is demonstrated from the fact that the same particles exist in a diffused, scattered state mingled with other matter. Next, they exist in a united form, growing out of the earth in the shape of grass, herbs, and trees. And after this, these vegetables, vegetables become food for celestial animals and are organized into their offspring and thus form the spirits of animals. Here then is apparently a transmigration of the same particles of spirit from an inferior to a superior organization, wherein their condition is improved and their sphere of action enlarged. Who shall set any bounds to this upward tendency of spirit? who shall prescribe limits to its progression. If it abides the laws and conditions of its several states of existence, who shall say that it will not progress until it shall gain the very summit of perfection and exist in all the glorious beauty of the image of God? Brigham Young and his counselors, end quote, Brigham Young and his counselors notified all Mormons that such ideas, quote, as advanced by Brother Pratt in an article in the Seer entitled Preexistence of Man and in his treatise entitled Great First Cause are plausibly presented but to the whole subject, we will answer in the words of the Apostle Joseph Smith on a similar occasion, it is not true. So it was interesting to see Orson Pratt and Brigham Young arguing there. Uh, but I, I think that's a very eloquently put, um, I mean, similar to our concept of, you know, you die and your atoms get incorporated mm -hmm. into other. Um, very much law of one also, right? Moving up through the... Um through the dimensions or the, uh, what are they called? Distortions. Uh, the densities. Densities, yep. yes, thank you. Moving up through the densities. And then uh, to get a little weirder here, so multiple mortal probations uh, are apparently more common in the fundamentalist Mormon branches, whether polygamists um, or some of the newer fundamentalists that are focusing on prepping and for the end times. And this is uh, out of a news article I got about Julie Rowe. Um, so she's the, she is actually, it'll describe her a bit, but she had a near death experience and then she wrote about it and became very new age, but still within a you know, God and Satan and Mormon context and eventually got excommunicated. But she, she was, she published her books through Chad Daybell's company. So Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, but then um, moved away from, said he was deceived by Satan. So it says Julie Rowe, another author who has published books through Chad Daybell's company, defended the idea of multiple mortal probations. Um, she said the belief is different from the idea of reincarnation. So she was the one behind all the, like the prepping. So that, you know, a few mm -hmm. years back when everybody was uh, getting prepared for this call out and living in tents and whatnot, this was uh, she was a big part of this. So these were fundamentalists. Mormons, yeah, not polygamists, but just, just, yeah, people that 
uh, are really focused on apocalypse end days. Um, yeah. Some focused on these spiritual experiences, not so much polygamy and in some instances, like rejecting that Joseph Smith taught polygamy. It's a weird, when you talk about fundamental Mormons or people getting back to fundamental fundamentals, it used to just mean the polygamy polygamists, but there's a movement of people trying to get back to that and get away from the woke church today. Which is always interesting to me that where you take something like Christianity, which has, which could otherwise provide a lot of spiritual value and you harness it by all of this uh, material need for like food and water and all stuff like preparation for where you might have another tradition like uh, Jainism, which is kind of a evolution on top of Hinduism uh, where these people can literally have only one set of clothes to their name as their only earthly possession. And Hmm. um, it's almost like, for those people, extreme spirituality, spirituality is actually extreme ascetic lifestyle, extreme asceticism, like extreme letting go mm. of the material world, where this kind of prepper version of Mormonism, which I think came from a lot, probably the mid 20th century uh, prophet focus on like, um, getting a year supply of food and those kinds of things. Those ideas really people get deep into that. I had a lot of friends around uh, Arizona growing up families that we knew in my own family getting, trying to get really set up with like a year supply of food. I don't know that that's so much the focus is coming from the pulpit now, but I think it did inform these groups, these kind of more extreme prepper groups, which to them, spirituality, must also include uh, having like a very secure footing in the material world with what you need. And it's just an interesting, different way that it can manifest. Yeah. And I, th- I see a lot of this as this need or desire or thirst for like excitement, deeper stuff, because the church is pretty boring. Um, definitely not as exciting as it was with Joseph Smith. So yeah, she said, she said the belief is different from the idea of reincarnation. Quote, the people that started Pathway to Zion started it for Chad and I and other dreamers and visionaries who are being persecuted, Rose said. I don't want to identify who I've been necessarily. I can just say that I've had many lives on this planet. The true doctrine is past lives. I've never been a butterfly or a caterpillar. I've never been a dog. I am always a human. I am always female. It's interesting that the gender thing has to... You know, they're taking these concepts and they're retrofitting it to Mormonism. Unlike Sosa, Roe has publicly stated that she no longer feels comfortable supporting Chad Daybell, who was also who also believed in multiple mortal probations. This was back, uh, I think, after the kids disappeared, but before um, they had realized that the kids had been killed. Uh, Roe yeah. said she and Chad Daybell have discussed their previous lives on other planets without going into too much detail. Quote, well, he told me he was James the Less. I've never told him how many planets I've been on. I don't even know how many planets I've been on. I don't care about that. I'm trying to get through this life, Rose said. I don't believe he was making it up. I believe he had deceiving spirits talking to him. And quote, James the Less, also known as James the Just or James the Brother of Jesus, was one of the 12 apostles chosen by Jesus in the Bible. And so James the Just is going to appear uh, later down the road. To when we talk a bit about 
uh, Gnostic apocalypse mm. of James. So, yeah. so yeah, interesting. This, I mean, it makes sense that because Joseph Smith was into these esoteric traditions, which do focus on, you know, do incorporate reincarnation that he eventually realized that it fit into his cosmology. Yeah. Um, it's also fascinating that there's mentioned, um, that, uh, well, let's just say eternal lives is a particular phraseology, you know, mm -hmm. in, in Mormonism, eternal lives specifically with an S on the end of it. Um, and I, I don't know, I, that like zoom way out, zoom way out. You've, you've got the star seed idea. Let's just say the big bang is the explanation for how it started. And when I think about the creation story, it's very much from, from light and darkness. So you've got polarity of matter. Uh, and then you've got uh, a chemistry basis with dry land and water and these chemicals as the earth's formulated as a planet. And then you've got biology that emerges, plants and animal species, and then hum humans emerge out later of, of it all. It's almost like evolution and the creation story are just two different languages describing the same thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And so star seeds being that the, whatever we're made of today was somewhere else in space at some other point that it all was connected in one thing before all of the matter was expelled at the speed and the universe is expanding. And um, it's kind of just all swirling together. And that's I think zoomed way out. There's an easy explanation for reincarnation and being part of every past life because it all came from the same place. Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and I guess I should, but we've always got to zoom in a little more and get more detailed and that's where the language gets come. Yeah. And I guess one thing that's helpful in terms of reincarnation again, to show how loosely I think you need to hold it from a concept of idealism, you know, people criticize, reincarnation because they say, oh, all these people, you know, remember being Cleopatra and, you know, how could that be? Um, so re this idea of reincarnation and this Jungian concept or this all is one concept that, that we are individual parts of the universal consciousness, kind of we're cells in this cosmic body. Um, and the, the big question is like, what do you identify as? yourself as being so and enlightenment and expanding your awareness is realizing that you're the cell, but you're also the body and that actually you can, you contain the genetic code for everything. Everything is inside you and you're also, um, part of everything and connected with everything. So it's this paradox. And so in that sense, you know, all your past lives, um, or all your ancestors, they're you, I mean, you're part you you view yourself as just a query of the database, one file retrieved, but you're actually the whole database as well, but you're just experiencing, you are God, you are the universe, just one part of it experiencing itself. And so you are all of your ancestors. Um, yeah. You think that you were Caesar, you're like the arm of Caesar. Um, and these, this idea of past lives or regressions or which ones um, come up when you're having these regression experiences, um, they're the ones that connect with your, you know, that resonate with the things that you're going through in this life 
or are applicable to yeah this life and so as all the past lives are yours um and if you want to view this from not as not perspective idealism i saw a youtube video of somebody who did you know was a skeptic didn't believe in this but did a past life regression he's one of these youtubers um and he saw stuff and he experienced stuff and he's like even if i don't believe it like you know i saw myself as this warrior and then i died in this way and he's like and that does apply to my life in the way that i you know i have this trait and i think i should be this way and i do this and this is affecting my relationship this way so i mean if you want to just view it on a subconscious level that your brain is making up stories of these patterns that you learned these traumas that you learned in just your life your childhood and they're being creatively woven into these dreams too i mean i think there's i don't think that's the most accurate re representation but you can still um gain benefit uh therapeutic benefit from doing it and some understanding mm -hmm. if somebody has this experience they're you know claiming to remember these things they're a reflection of some part of them on a subconscious level whether you think that's bound within a specific just them or if there is a, con a connection to a collective unconscious so um I think that's helpful to keep in mind of this is, this is a loose yeah. symbolic idea. Well, to, and again, kind of going back to what you said, where people that are in your life exist in your mind. So a part of them is inside you. It, it's uh, you have a, you have a perception of what somebody is. It's like what we talked about with the dog. You don't see everything about somebody. You see some part of them and then, in your mind that's them and they're they're like reflected in your mind and uh in that sense the immortality eternal life i mean you think about like jesus christ certainly he's he exists in the world as this god of um let's just say just setting aside any kind of faith in him as as a living entity now just the fact that uh, so many people talk about him, depict him in images, write about him, live their life. Like he has this real impact in the world and that's kind of him being immortal in a sense. And Joseph Smith, it's like to rise to that level where you're going to be immortal because you're going to be like Joseph Smith said, everyone will talk about me good or bad for the rest of the time. Basically he knew that he had risen to that level or maybe he didn't know. He just, maybe he, maybe he like recognized that he did or that he could potentially, but I don't even think he could fathom what it became now with what it is. Um, but yeah, it's like the emphasis on, on uh, baptisms for the dead in the temple work and family history. Mormonism has such a emphasis, an emphasis because of the, because of the ordinances ne needing to be done on a living person where we do those vicariously for our dead ancestors in the temple, we do baptisms and the other ordinances. Um, it's, it's like, uh, if you can really, I, I think there's been studies done and I shouldn't say that without really being able to quote it, but that there are ideas where people who have a more secure understanding of who they came from, like kids who knew their grandparents or their great grandparents, uh, show more signs of stability in like school and in, in performance day-to-day -day kind of things because they have, it's like in a forest where 
little sapling falls, but it's protected by the big grown up trees around it from the wind and the storms has a better chance for that tree. That's why trees out on their own have a really hard time growing in certain places, right? Maybe trees that create the community. So that ancestry is a way creating the eternal life itself because they exist like the stories of ancestors and pioneers and people who came across uh, plains or across oceans for their faith exist eternally in the lives of their progenitors who continue to look back at them. So you do can, you can create this entire like consistent, imagine if the entire human family's human history could be plotted on a tree, maybe be in the digital space at this point, they would obviously have to be held. Um, but if that could be the case, you would have, uh, just if it, like maybe you could have a really, really strong kind of society emerge out of a place where people have that history of who they were. And then those people become immortal, if that makes sense. Not in the sense that they're living again as they were when they were alive, but they live on in the world as mm -hmm. some kind of entity that's impacting. Yeah. All right, we're gonna finish up with, uh, finish up the plan of salvation. So after judgment, so that's spirit, after the spirit prison, there's gonna be a judgment and assignment to kingdoms of glory. It's the celestial glory of the sun, terrestrial glory of the stars, the moon. The sun, the moon, and the stars, okay. the celestial. And celestial. it was only later that I realized that stars are suns just from really far yeah. away. <laughs> um, so there's these degrees of glory and within the celestial kingdom, there's three degrees of glory as well. So it's a quote from D. Michael Quinn showing, I mean, we Mormons teach, I believe that this was a fairly unique Mormon doctrine, but then there was that, you know, verse in Corinthians talking about it that we used um, the mission to support it. Um, but you, as we'll see, this also was borrowed um, and adapted. So D. Michael Quinn says, on the other hand, the 1832 vision's description of multiple heavens was compatible with occult views. Even degrees of glory was an occult phrase connected with the ancient mystical beliefs of Judaism. Since 1728, a multi-volume encyclopedia noted that the originer, originator of abracadabra, the phrase or the word abracadabra, believed in, quote, seven angels who presided over the seven heavens, end quote. Sibley's A New and Complete Illustration of the Occult Sciences stated in 1784 that, quote, seven angels before their fall enjoyed the same places and degrees of glory that now belong to the seven good angels or genii, end quote. Sibley's 13th edition appeared six years before Smith's 1832 vision. In biblical commentaries published in the United States during the early 1800s, Charles Buck and Adam Clark acknowledged the Jewish occult's concept of, quote, degrees of glory in heaven, end quote, but it was a major emphasis of occult advocates. Uh, he also says, aside from a 13th century German manuscript written by a female mystic, before 1830, occult writers were the only public advocates of three heavens in publications in England since 1784 and in the United States since 1812. Emanuel Swedenborg insisted, quote, there are three heavens described as, quote, entirely distinct from each other, end quote, often regarded as a devotee of the occult. This Swedish mystic called the highest heaven, the celestial kingdom and stated that the inhabitants of the three heavens corresponded to the sun, moon, and stars. In presenting that cosmology, Sibley's occult sciences stated, quote, there are three degrees in man according to the three heavens, 
end quote. This was part of his 20-page summary of Swedenborg's teachings about spirits and departed souls of men and about heaven and hell. And so, yeah, the, the terrestrial and telestial seem like they are somewhat unique to Mormonism, but celestial kingdom was a term used by Swedenborg. And there was a convert from Swedenborg and Borgianism uh, in, I believe, Nauvoo. And there's a quote from Joseph Smith talk, commenting on Swedenborg, how he um, understood the heavens, but he couldn't feed himself or something. So it's just some reference that shows that Joseph Smith was familiar with Swedenborg. Um, but yeah, the concept of star or the sun, moon, and stars, heavens corresponding to that was not unique. Uh, and then we had talked about this earlier, but there's this, um, you know, a parallel in Gnosticism is this Apocalypse of James, which was this text, uh, Gnostic gospel recovered in the Nag Hammadi uh, um, texts in the 1940s. And it's this idea uh, in this gospel is a, an account of Christ talking to James the Just or James the Less, which apparently Chad Daybill was, thought he was in a past life. And it, in this text, Christ is telling James that, hey, you're going to die. And that when you, um, after you die, you're going to be, you're going to encounter three archons known as the toll collectors and that you're going to be, have to give him these passwords to bliss so that you can enter into the highest of the 72 levels. And one, one is going to ask you, who are you and where are you from? And then the soul should reply, I am a son. I am from the father. The archon will then ask what sort of son are you and to what father do you belong? The soul should reply, I am from the preexistent father and a son in the preexistent one. And then it, we can't follow. I think the text doesn't have the next things it's broken. Um, but then it picks up again at the end of a question that says of alien things. And then one's divine spark shall continue with, they are not entirely alien, but they are from Akamoth, who is female. And these she produced as she brought down the race from the preexistent one. So then they are not alien, but they are ours. They are indeed ours because she who is the mistress of them is from the preexistent one. At the same time, they are alien because the preexistent one did not have intercourse with her. And when she produced them, the archon will then ask, where will you go? The soul is to respond to the place from which I have come there. I shall return. So I forgot we full circle back to aliens. I'm not exactly sure what they uh, are referring to as aliens, but so in this Gnostic gospel, it's showing the sentinels after mm -hmm. James dies that he's going to be asked questions so that he can get to the highest kingdom of heaven and escape. You know, the Gnostics believed that this physical life was a, like a prison, kind of the matrix that Yahweh, who is actually not God, but he just thought he was God. He's kind of this middle manager um, that was running things. And that Sophia, who is um, kind of the serpent, helped Eve put the spark, divine spark into the souls so they could escape from this physical world. So similar to plan of salvation, but kind of opposite in the sense that Gnostics believe the physical matter was um, bad and a prison, whereas Joseph Smith said that we came down here for physical matter. But you've got these questions, just very similar to the temple. But I think there's another one of this case where some people may say, oh, this shows that Joseph Smith 
was a prophet. Um, but I would contend that actually these questions and answers, I think, are more enlightening than the stuff in the temple. I never really got, I don't think they're, they're very profound, the question and answers at the veil. Um, but I think this is, this actually has some deeper philosophy and teachings about our nature and how we're returning to this kind of oneness, this pleroma um, that Gnosticism teaches. So I, I would say this actually, yes, this shows that Joseph Smith was connecting to something, which I think is partially because he was copying and adapting esoteric traditions. Um, and then also, I think there's evidence to showing that he was accessing this universal consciousness through psychedelics, through altered states of consciousness, through kind of channeling um, this automatic writing idea of the Book of Mormon. So I think, I think it does show metaphysical or divine inspired nature of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. Um, but I think it actually also contextualizes it as that the truth claims do not make sense. Um, but there is some truth to it and it's an adaptation. Yeah. So it's like, um, I think when I was a believing full believing member, I, I was so concerned about finding that capital T truth, or at least I was convinced that I had found it and, uh, finding for myself that, that that real capital T truth is pretty much ineffable, ineffable. There are truths that are discoverable. There are truths for sure. But, um, but like the bedrock of it, I think is just models trying to explain it in language that we have at the time in the place that we have based on the ideas that are kind of swirling around us. Uh, it's like the, the collective unconscious carries the, the parts of our human family's story with us that since it's much like our own consciousness, parts of our body, the cells, individual cells can die or be reborn. And yet the narrative, uh, of who we are continues through all of that. Um, and in that same way, like the human family has this collective unconscious, these symbols that keep recycling, recurring, repeating, echoing through time and in different languages through different places. So recognizing that gave me a lot of confidence that, that there's value in religion to, to read about, to study, to, um, for myself, like I like reading about it and spreading, uh, spreading far and wide with it if I can and kind of holding its ideas pretty loosely, but seeing where they do connect. And Mormonism became one of those for me. It's like I could read about Mormonism and be fascinated by it in the same way that I could read about Buddhism and be fascinated by it. Uh, but there are things that echo through them that start to approach truth, I think, that start to uh, create the, the fabric that is like where Mormonism is a certain color of thread in the whole fabric, uh, a part of the tapestry, as it were. Like, just like... Judaism at the time in that, in that place was the farthest that spiritualism had evolved through that culture. That's what was emerging and manifesting was Judaism. And you wouldn't say uh, like uh, a full believing Mormon person might say that they have more truth maybe, but it's like that it just gets added onto 
it's a ground up view rather than a top down view. What Judaism was, part of it became Christianity. What Christianity is, part of it became Mormonism. What Mormonism is, part of it became, well, it fractured in a lot of different uh, directions and it continues to. So it's probably more true to say that religions are started and then fracture than to say one single religion, and it happens to be the one that I belong to, is the most true and correct and all the other ones are wrong. It seems to me safer to say religions begin and then religions fracture because mm -hmm. that seems to be more empirically true. Yeah, I think the key there that you said that, you know, big G truth is ineffable. And once, once you realize that it is ineffable and that of course we wouldn't, I mean, it's silly to think that within the constructs of words and language, which is what we think in um, and understand things in that we would ever be able to understand God, the universe. Um, but there's certain principles that we can understand, like the oneness of the universe, the fractal nature of the universe. And once you understand it's a fractal, then instead of copying it pixel by pixel, you start zooming out and learning to draw the fractal pattern. And then, then you can use that to extrapolate. And just like science, you know, science doesn't claim like any of these laws are true. They're just approximations to describe nature, which is, um, you know, describe what's happening around us. And we have laws that like classical Newtonian physics that work pretty well. And then we realize they break down and then there's a, something that's more comprehensive, like quantum physics. We don't say that law, you know, classical physics is not true, that it's false. It's just, it was an approximation and that's what mm -hmm. religion and spirituality should be viewed as. Um, well, and it gets built onto, it gets amended mm -hmm. and adapted and evolved just like all of our biological parts over time through use and through uh, successes and failures, sin and rebirth and trying again, the evolution of the bodies of creatures, and plants that uh, just keeps, um, I think, reiterating. It's like just an iteration machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, then eternal progression. We talked about this in the last episode, but just a, a, a recap. So Joseph Smith taught as man is God once was, as God is now man may become. And this idea in Mormonism of eternal progression is that you and your wife or wives technically um, would become gods. You'd have your own worlds, have your spirit children. Um, and uh, this is, I mean, I see Joseph Smith was very much, he was very literally believing these things and trying to describe the fractal nature and eternal progression from a 3D sense of like having kids and worlds and whatnot. But I think, you know, we had described um, this idea of dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple personality disorder. And, you know, in... This is Bernardo Castrops, uh, a philosopher and computer scientist. His model for the universe is this idea of idealism or the universe is made of consciousness and that we, similar to how dissociative identity disorder describes a person, a consciousness that 
um, is dissociated into individual consciousnesses. So they have individual alter egos that take over at different times. And one alter ego, you know, isn't aware of what the other alter ego is doing when it's controlling or in the driver's seat of the body. Um, but they're individual separate consciousness, but they're part of a bigger consciousness. And he has described this as a, you know, a model for the universe is that, you know, the universe is mental, it's a consciousness, and we are essentially different alter egos. Um, and I think the, you know, different parts of the universe that are interacting with other parts of the, this cosmic um, mind. And I think where this actually makes a lot of sense is these studies of dissociative identity disorder individuals and how real it is. So the one, uh, this interview that he gave, he talked about the one study where somebody claimed that one of the alter egos was blind. And sure enough, when that alter ego took over on the EEG, there is no activity in the visual cortex. Um, but more interestingly enough, when these all, uh, individuals, you know, a quarter of the individuals when they were recalling their dreams, depending on which alter ego was recalling the dream, it was sharing the same dream, but from a different character's perspective. So in the person with this dissociative identity disorder, when they were dreaming, uh, they, all these different parts of them were acting as different parts in the dream. And that is similar to this Hindu idea of, you know, that we, God uh, goes through these periods of waking and sleeping and in the sleeping state, uh, all these different parts are kind of waking up to the idea that they are, are God, and this is a dream. Um, and so, and I think to continue this theme and this idea of dissociative identity disorder and healing and oneness and connection, um, you, there are instances in which people with this, uh, condition, which is caused by trauma because these different parts of the consciousness kind of quarantine themselves off to protect the other part, to kind of dissociate away so that, you know, because they go through these significant traumas, um, through therapy, these individuals can actually heal and all these different parts come together into one healed uh, collective consciousness. And I think that's this idea that Joseph Smith talked about, you know, Zion is one heart, one mind. Um, but also, you know, new age and, um, these Eastern traditions talk about, you know, collective consciousness that we all are one, um, even though we are separate, but we're also one. And so I think there's, you know, especially in this idea of eternal progression, um, and, you know, you talked about eternal lives, which is true. That's something that's said, uh, you know, from the very literal perspective that Joseph Smith had, it means you and your heavenly, you know, wife are having Probably kids yeah. and those kids are coming from you, you know, coming from the gods, they are part of you. And so that is again, this fractal nature, um, that similar to this concept of reincarnation and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, the fractal universe. So all these models that are trying to approach it and then they get upgraded and built upon each other. It's kind of like computer languages, as I understand it, there's some base language of binary of a computer, basically uh, being just kind of a light switch of either electricity or no electricity or one or zero. 
And then from there, all of the other languages get built on top of it. I think that is not unlike religious ideas that just continue to get additions built on top of them throughout time as they swirl around other cultures and other ideas. And there, there are themes and recurring um, emergent like archetypes that uh, get represented through that language. I think the number pi is a great example because it's like at some point we could only calculate pi to some point. We'll never get to pi. We'll never get to the actual full number because it just keeps going, right? But we can get calculators or we can mm -hmm. continue yeah. to calculate more of what pi is. But pi isn't a finished thing. It's not a complete thing. It's just going to keep going. And I, that's kind of like as our spiritual through through the collective unconsciousness of the human family's experience, especially now that it's globally con connected through the uh, through the internet, through the digital world, which is an entire universe, the digital universe, um, that those ideas will just keep spinning up and keep recurring and keep getting added onto, just like we find more digits in the number pi. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, we made it through the plan of salvation and the similarities wow. to esoteric and new age, uh, thought. That's cool. So yeah. Thank you everybody for joining us and, um, please comment, review, send us an email at Mormons, mystics, and muons, muons at gmail.com and share it with your friends and leave us a rating. We appreciate you joining us and we'll see you next time.